We know in uh, Proverbs 18:21 it says the tongue has power of life and death. Right? We know that our words can be extremely powerful. It can, it can raise someone up and it can tear someone down. And so we're, we're reminded in Scripture to be very cautious and careful with the words that we choose. Now, when a word or a phrase is chosen carefully, that can bring a whole lot of joy and excitement to our lives, right? There are times where when things are said that we just want to stand up and scream and shout in excitement. Uh, and and uh, let, me give you, let me give you a few examples of some phrases that were said uh, that brought good news. Uh, back when um, they found bin Laden and killed him, the coded message back was Geronimo E., K-I-A. And I don't know if you remember seeing the images of what that room looked like to, to hear that justice had been done. Or when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, he responded with Houston, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed. Or in 1964, Ed Sullivan said something that shook America. He said, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. <laughs> or we've recently just had the Winter Olympics, and I don't know about you, but when, even if it's not America, and I'm watching somebody, and then all of a sudden you hear new world record, I get excited. I'm like, I'm watching history here in the making. And those, those again, those are just simple phrases that get us excited. And, and perhaps maybe on a, poor, a more personal basis, uh, you probably got really excited when you heard the phrase, congratulations, you've got the job, right? You could imagine that feeling again of what that was like. Uh, or perhaps for, for many of us, the phrase, will you marry me? Or more importantly, she said yes, right? <laughs> Right? The, those are exciting things that we hear. Or, or let, me, let, me give you, let me give you one more. How many of us can still remember hearing Meryl Reese say, the Philadelphia Eagles are Super Bowl champions? <laughs> right? right? Simple phrases can bring great joy and excitement to our lives. Uh, and today is one of those days where where Christ is going to utter a very simple phrase that should cause us to want to shout for joy and celebrate over what has been done. Now, I just want to kind of give you a heads up here. Our time frames are going to get a little messed up uh, in the next two weeks, okay? Because next week is Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem riding on the donkey and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And I know some of you may be coming expecting a message on that. We actually did that all the way back in January, so you missed it, okay? Um, and then... The following week is going to be Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, as some people like to say. And I know you may be thinking on Easter that we're going to talk about the resurrection. Uh, and, and we're actually going to do that this week uh, and next week on Palm Sunday. So I just kind of want you mentally prepared that as you guys come on these, these important Christian holidays as we celebrate, you know, that you're, you're not coming in and being like, wait a minute, why are we, 
why are we doing Jesus' is, is, is resurrection now when, you know, again, it's Palm Sunday. We, we did that all the way back. But what Jesus did in a week has taken us four months to discuss. And I have to be honest, even if we had an entire lifetime, I don't know if we could ever really scratch the surface of the riches of what God has done here at the place of Calvary. So I just wanted to, to put that out there. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be in John, John chapter 19. Again, just a backstory. John, is, uh, Jesus has come. He's in his final week. He's talking with his disciples. He's letting them know what's going to happen. Um, and he's preparing them ultimately for his, his death and his resurrection. And so then he prays for his disciples. He prays for God's glory. And then we saw that he went in this kind of hodgepodge uh, trial before the Sanhedrin. And then he's taken before Pilate. And we talked about that last week. And he's put on trial before Pilate ultimately to be executed uh, on the cross for his crime, for being the king of kings, for being the Lord of lords, for proclaiming to be God. That's why Jesus has been put on trial. Now, again, each gospel has a little bit of a different angle and a different take on the, the ministry and the life and death of Jesus. And so as we go through today and, and next week, uh, I just wanted to remind you, there are a couple key points of the stories that we may not do a lot on, that we may not cover at all, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. So, for instance, the two criminals that hung on the cross, we won't really discuss them very much. The famous phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the earthquake, the darkening of the sky, the tearing of the temple veil, the centurion proclaiming, surely this must be the Son of God. Again, all of those are scriptural and all of those are in the gospel but as we we go through the rest of John here we won't really be hitting those key points so if you're kind of like looking for those phrases in your mind again each author is a little bit different and selective in what they're doing okay so again I just want to do a lot of little prep work here as we get started so John chapter 19 we're going to start in verse 23 and I'm going to read all the way through verse 37 when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. And with the undergarment remaining, the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing all that was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of vinegar was mixed there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop, hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now the day of preparation, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. 
The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus, Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who was solid and given testimony, his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So Jesus has committed himself to the cross. He committed himself to his disciples, to the saving uh, mankind. He has committed himself to the pain and the agony of which he is now going to go through. And we also see that he's committed himself to the work of God. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to see three areas that Jesus further commits himself to, that Jesus wants to fulfill in terms of the promises and the works of Jesus. So as he's hanging on the cross, he looks down and there's a whole bunch of Marys below him. And there's his mother. And there's also John, the one whom Jesus loved. And so Jesus says, he says, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he says, here is your mother. Now, the fact that Jesus is offering John to care for his mother tells us that at this point, his father has probably passed, right? Joseph has, has probably died at this point because he wouldn't need John to care for her if he was still alive. But Jesus, in his goodness, is ensuring that she is taken care of because of the love that he has for his mother. And he also cares very deeply for John that he's able to basically give John the honor of being able to care for his mother. And we know that loss is hard. And in this fashion, we have to imagine that what Mary is watching and experiencing has to be heartbreaking. To see her son being crucified upon a cross, to be ridiculed and mocked, to go through the pain and the torment of all of this as a mother is just an absolute crushing blow to the soul. But Jesus, in his final moments, cares so deeply for her that he is looking out for her and her best interest. And so when it says in 2 Corinthians 1 there, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receiving from God. I mean, this is literally a tremendous example of Jesus being the father of compassion. I mean, when, when we know that our lives are nearing the end, we start to get our affairs in order, right? We start to make those final plans. We, we try to really spend time with the ones that we love and we care for. And then as, as life gets closer and closer to the end, we, we may struggle to be able to do that. But here is Jesus literally hanging on the cross, 
when everybody probably is thinking, how do we care for this man up there? Somebody do something. It is in Jesus's nature to flip the script and say, no, even in my dying moments, I'm still going to care for you. That is a father of compassion. And so we can be confident that no matter what happens in our lives, guys, that Jesus is going to care for us until the very, very end, until we are taken home. Because we literally just see this example, that Jesus is always going to love us and make sure that we are cared for and comforted. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing I want us to notice here is that John starts throwing about a lot of scripture references for the Old Testament saying that they needed to be fulfilled. So the dividing of the clothes, he mentions he's thirsty, the bones would not be broken and that he would be pierced. These were all Old Testament references long before Jesus ever came in the physical earthly flesh. And so, again, why does John do this? Now, the internet... You could do very easily now. Um, you guys could go online and you could look at all of the scriptural references that Jesus has fulfilled. And depending upon how you break these up, Jesus literally would have fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies in scripture about the coming Messiah. Now, I'm not going to give you hundreds right now, but let me just show you a couple here. We see in the Old Testament he was going to be born of a woman, descended from Abraham and David, coming from the tribe of Judah. We know that he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, that there would be a messenger sent before him to prepare the way. That would then be John the Baptist. We know that he would perform miracles, and the scriptures are littered with the, the miracles of Jesus, of, of healing the lame, healing the blind, uh, healing the sick. Right? Raising people from the dead. He would teach in parables, and we know that Jesus often did that with his followers and with the, with the crowd. And we know that he would be rejected and suffered as we read in Isaiah, and that he would be beaten and spat upon. Now, these are just a couple pieces of scripture that Jesus fulfilled. As I said, if you were to go online, you could find the list and list and list and list of Jesus that fulfilled, which in itself would be a miracle that one man could fulfill every single one of those prophecies, unless he actually was who he said he was, which is God. So we have all these prophecies. And this becomes really important. Because again, in Jewish culture, there was a promised Messiah. And for a long time, the Messiah was going to be a king who would bring prosperity to Israel. And then again, that idea of the king turns into a warrior king after Israel gets conquered in 586 by the Babylonians. And the temple is destroyed. And then the Persians come in 539 and they destroy the Babylonians and they allow the Jews to go back. And at this point, they're realizing that again, they are under oppression of the Gentiles. And now their sense of a Messiah is going to be one that's going to free them. And then by around 300 BC, we have the Hellenistic rule by Alexander the Great. He comes in. And then the Jews revolt. And for a brief period, under the, the, the leadership of the Hasmoneans, there's this temporary moment for, for about 100 years 
where Israel has its freedom from the Gentiles. But then the Romans come along in 63 BC and reclaim Israel. And yet again, they are wondering, where is our Messiah that is going to free us from the oppression of the Gentiles? And I think this is so important because during this time, the Jews are always on watch. Where is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? Who is the one that is going to fulfill all of these prophecies? Now, let me, let me just give you a couple messiahs that, that showed up uh, that ultimately failed in the process. So, again, as I said, that inner period between the Greeks and Roman rule, you had the Hasmoneans. And one of the individuals that people got excited about was John Herakonassus. And he, he starts to rule, and Israel's prospering, and then he proclaims himself king and high priest of Israel. And so now they're excited. Is this the guy? He's both king and high priest. Well, the, the problem is, we know that we've already just said, the king has to come through the line of David, and the Hasmoneans were through the line of Levi. And furthermore, in order to be the high priest, you had to specifically be from the line of Aaron, to which John was not. He was a Levite, but he didn't specifically come through the line of Aaron. And so ultimately, he was a letdown. It would not be the actual true Messiah. And then right around 4 BC is the time that Jesus is about to be born here. We had a couple other guys. Uh, we had uh, Judas from Sephoris. It was a town in Galilee. He began to gather a sizable army and began to revolt and fight against the Romans and began to, to burn down some of the, the royal properties of the Romans and Jews. Then we had Judah, uh, Simon from Perea. He actually ends up proclaiming himself to be king. Uh, and he also gathers a bunch of people and continues to fight against the Romans and, and, and burning down stuff. And then we had Anthrogenes. He was a shepherd. And you know what he also did? He proclaimed himself king as well. And then he began to fight against the Romans and the Jewish authority. He began to murder them and began to, to take their property and seize their stuff. And then right after Jesus, the death of Jesus, we, we also have the Samaritan prophet. He promised that when he gathered people together, that he would show them the artifacts that Moses had hidden. That the, 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 the stuff from the Ark of the Covenant was said to have been buried. And he told the people, he said, I'm going to show this to you and prove to you that I'm the Messiah. And then we also had a man by the name of Theodos. And he was said to have performed many miracles. And he had promised to his people, he said, follow me to the Jordan River and I will part the Jordan River. Well, on his way to the Jordan River, the Romans showed up and arrested him. And you know what? The Romans arrested all of these other false messiahs, and many of them were killed. And so what John is trying to establish here is that this Jesus is the only actual true Messiah that is fulfilling all of these different scriptures. And so he wants to make it abundantly clear that whoever came before Jesus and whoever comes after Jesus is a fraud. 
Do not fall for the lies and do not fall into the trap of the false messiah. And John is making it extremely clear that this is to be true. Now, just a little other important note here that about fulfilling the scriptures, he specifically references towards the end there about the bones not being broken. And this is why this is so important that Jesus fulfills the scripture. In Exodus 12, as it's talking about the Passover, it says it must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house and do not break any of the bones. That's referring to the, to the lamb that they were to slaughter. And then in Numbers 9, 12, it says they must not leave any of it till morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all of the regulations. Again, the Passover lamb was meant to be perfect. It was to be without blemish. And not only without blemish, but to not have any bones broken. And so in order to fulfill that obligation in the Passover for tradition, that is what had to happen. And here Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures as the Passover lamb so that you and I could have our sins forgiven as he is offered to the world on our behalf. So Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one that could redeem us from our sins. So we see that he's fulfilling the work of, of God here by, by caring for us and fulfilling the scriptures to prove that he is the Messiah. Now there's one final part here that we need to take a look at. And that's the phrase, right? I, I talked about how simple phrases can make us shout for joy and get so excited. Well, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he lets out that he's thirsty. And, and they, they get a mixture of wine and water together and put it on a sponge and, and hold it up to him so he can get enough to drink so he can utter this final phrase. Now, understand that this is not the same mixture that was offered to Jesus in the beginning. Uh, we, we're told in Matthew that he was kind of essentially tried to be given a painkiller to which Jesus rejected. So this is not the same thing. This is a different drink. This is just to, to wet his palate here. And before he passes from life to death, he shouts out on the cross, it is finished. Now, don't get me wrong. That phrase alone can communicate to us the importance of what Jesus did, right? We understand he finished the work of God, that he died for our sins, that, that it has now been completed for us. But that's just a superficial understanding and a quick read. If we dive further into the cultural context we get a bigger and much richer and deeper understanding of what it means when Jesus says it is finished. So let me give you a couple of the cultural understandings to this. Now, first off, it's the Greek word for telia, which literally just means to finish a task, complete an assignment or accomplish a goal. Okay. So in the ancient world, a variety of settings. The first thing that we see is that typically when a boss would give a job to a servant, the servant would go out, do the job, and when he finished, he would come back to his boss and let him know it was done by saying, it is finished. And when men were on the battlefield and, and the enemy has retreated, the enemy has been slain, 
it wouldn't have been uncommon to hear the shouts of the soldiers cry out, it is finished. We have won the victory. Sometimes it was used when they talked about the, t- the transition of a time period. That, that when there was one period of history that was starting to end and another one was beginning. So, for instance, the time of, of one ruler to the next. They would talk about that transition time period as saying it is finished. Or every year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, he'd go behind the veil, behind the curtain, and he would, he would sacrifice the atonement. He would sacrifice the lamb for, to make it atonement or to cover over the sins of Israel that would pacify the wrath of God. And so he'd go behind the veil, and everybody outside the temple would wait. And they would wait in anticipation, and they would wait in excitement. And when the high priest would come out after he performed the job, he would shout to the people, it is finished. But perhaps the most common usage that we would see is when a debt collector would go around to the people that owed money or had a loan, and they finally paid it off, they'd be given a piece of parchment. And with it, they would stamp the phrase, It is finished, meaning that the debt had been wiped clean. So these are all cultural nuances of a very simple phrase. But when we think about all of that, and then Jesus gets on the cross, he he, he wets his palate because he's got one more important thing to say, and he shouts out, It is finished. What does that mean for us It means that Jesus has completed the work and the ministry of God. That he has set out to accomplish what he was to do, which was to give his life away, just like a servant was told to do by his boss. It means that when he got on the cross, and all of the world thinks that Jesus is going to die, and that this is lost, It is not a phrase of defeat, but it is a shout of victory because Jesus has conquered the power of sin, Satan, and death. And when Jesus is there and he says it is finished, he's talking about the transition from the old covenant of the law to the new covenant of grace. Because in the old covenant of law, man was given a law and said, here is what you are to uphold. But instead, all the law told us is that we could never uphold the law ourselves. And because we are sinners, we are destined for death. But along comes the new covenant of grace in Christ, who said it is no longer yours to uphold the law, but it is mine. And I shall hold it on your behalf as the perfect sacrificial lamb. And as the sacrificial lamb, every year they had to go and sacrifice an animal. Every year they had to go back again and again and again and again to satisfy God. It was a temporary solution to an eternal problem of sin. But along comes Jesus. And when he cries out, it is finished, 
He says, I am the permanent and final solution to sin. That we no longer have to go behind the curtain or the veil anymore. Because now it's been torn. Because I am the mediator between you and God. And when Christ is hanging there, and His blood is shed for our sins, what His blood does for us, it stamps us with the phrase, it is finished because our sins have been washed away. That is what it means when Jesus says, it is finished. It is a life-changing statement for you and I. We see in Colossians 2, it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision in your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It is finished. It is finished. You know, Charles Spurgeon, a great theologian, when he read this passage and he talked about this phrase, he said, we would need all of the other words that were ever spoken or could ever be spoken to explain this phrase. It's altogether immeasurable. It is high and I cannot attain it. It is deep and I cannot fathom it. It is finished. So again, what did Jesus finish? He finished the promises, the prophecies of the Messiah to come. He, he, he finished the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the priesthood. He, he finished the perfect obedience to God, which we ourselves could not do. He finished the satisfaction of God's wrath and showed God's justice to us once and for all. And he finished the victorious work of defeating sin, Satan, and death for now and forever. And so when we say it's finished, guys... Understand this, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you and I have to do. All we need to do is rest in the finished work of Christ. So what do we do? Guys, we live in the freedom of this. We live in the freedom that our sins are forgiven, that death will not hold us. The grave will not hold us down as the grave will not hold Jesus down. We rest in the joy and the celebration knowing that Christ did everything that ever needed to be done for you and I and we never had to do anything to earn His love, His grace, His goodness, His mercy. He took it all upon Himself and said, I will do what you cannot do because I love you.
So let this be a week as we are about to enter into Palm Sunday. As we think about when Jesus came riding in on that donkey. Let us be in joy and celebration that the work of Jesus has been done now and forever. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. Father, you are so abundantly good that you assumed every aspect of life for our salvation. Father, we fail to uphold the law. Lord, we are sinners steeped in that sin. And you still chose to love and you still chose to care. Lord, you, you bore the burden upon your shoulders. The pain, the beatings, the mockery, the crown of thorns, the piercing in the side, the nails in your hands and your feet to do the work that we could not do. Lord, you assume that for us. And so as a result, our faith is not one of depression and sadness, but of joy and celebration. Lord, may we constantly be praising your name upon our lips. Lord, let that be evident in the lives that we walk, that there is hope, there is freedom, there is purpose and meaning in our life behind the simple phrase, it is finished. To that I say, amen. <laughs>